take your seats and if you'd like to pick up your Bibles and turn to Job, you might be expecting a bit of New Testament today but we're looking at Job chapter 19 and uh, Jenny's going to come and read that for us and then Colin will come to preach. Job chapter 19. Then Job replied, how long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me, shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way so that I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. My guests and my female servants count me a foreigner. They, took, they looked upon me as a stranger. I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends, have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you say how we, we will hound him, since the root of the trouble lies in him, you should fear the sword yourselves, for wrath will, be, will bring punishment by the sword, and then you will know that there is judgment. Amen. Thank you, Jenny. 
can ask a personal question. Have anybody here ever done a bungee jump? Now, an impertinent question. Has anybody here ever contemplated doing a bungee jump? You're all very sensible. Job, I think, is the first recorded account of a bungee jumper. Not, not in any physical sense, um, but in an emotional sense. Uh, and when you come to read the book of Job, it's, it's often quite a difficult read because you're not quite sure what's going on. The moment you get a handle on where Job is, he seems to bounce off somewhere else. Um, he, he's, he's all over the place. And that's not really surprising. The, the structure of the book is simple enough. There's an opening narrative um, which appears to be secret from Job. He doesn't know um, what's happened in, in the councils of God. He, he doesn't know about the dialogue between Satan and God. It's a mystery to him. Uh, and he then loses everything. Well, almost everything. And then there's a bruising debate between him and his alleged friends. Uh, and then you come to the end of the book where there's a concluding narrative where everything, again, seems to, to be righted uh, and everything makes sense. Job, we believe, lived at the same sort of time as Abraham. Um, before the law, uh, before the emergence of Israel as the people of God, he's one example of a number of people who still feared the living God, and despite minimal revelation. Uh, I guess not all the descendants of Noah had totally forgotten their God, and creation was still manifesting his handiwork, because we remember what Paul says in Romans, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. But we know there were people like Melchizedek and others that were around at the time. So he's, he's very, very early. And he's got a problem, or he's got a number of problems. Firstly, um, his life story is unbelievably tragic, isn't it? I, I mean, people have difficult lives, but I, I doubt there is anybody in recorded history who's had quite the reversals that Job did. Uh, and as you read those opening chapters of the book, they, they come, don't they, one upon the other. There's, there's hardly a breath before the next problem comes. Uh, and so Job feels aggrieved. He, he feels the only thing that's left to him, uh, and this may say something to us about um, Satan's wisdom, if not his morality, the only thing he doesn't take away from him is his wife. And the reason for that is that she's going to give him terrible advice. Do you still hold on to your integrity, she says? Curse God and die. So she's not the most helpful um, of wives. But he's got friends. It's good to have friends, isn't it? Unless they're like Job's friends. Because enter his friends who suffer um, from a not uncommon problem. They have a simplistic view of providence and of life itself. 
Their, their view is, is very, very simple. God rewards the righteous with material blessings. Therefore, if God takes your material blessings away from you, it's because you've done something to upset God. Simple, isn't it? It's the, basically, isn't it, the, the message still of the, the health, wealth, and prosperity people. If you want to know if, if God loves you, well, have a look at your circumstances, and if everything's going well, um, everything's fine. But that's just not the truth. Uh, and the book of Job makes it clear that it's not the truth. But they are relentless, these friends, in, in pushing this point with them. Let me just give you one example from each of them. Eliphaz, this is in the order in which they speak. Eliphaz, Job 4 and verse 7. Remember who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? Come on, Job, he says. Look at your circumstances. It, it is evidence that you are not innocent. If you were, none of this would have happened to you. Uh, and then Job kind of argues back with him. Um, second, he comes Bildad. Chapter 8, verses 2 to 3. How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a great wind. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? Come on, Job. Think about it. You, you're saying that God isn't dealing unfairly with you, but that can't be true. And then enter Zophar. Chapter 11, 14 and 15. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You'll be secure and will not fear. Simple message, repent, and everything will be fine. It's all your fault, uh, and you need to sort it out as quickly as possible. Uh, and then finally, lastly, after a long silence, his last friend, Elihu, chapter 33, verses 9 to 12. He says to Job, you say, I am pure without transgression. I'm clean and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this you are not right. So all his friends are all of one mind, everything that's happened to Job is his own fault, and everything that's happened to Job is because he is deluded about his standing with God. But of course, as we get into the book of Job, you and I have an advantage. We have been invited into the council of eternity. We have been there um, when Satan comes forward, uh, and we've heard God say, Job 1.8, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So, the judgment of God concerning Job is that by human standards, by, by earthly standards, you will range up and down over the face of the planet and you won't find a more godly, a better man, a more righteous man than Job. Of course, God isn't saying that Job is, is so righteous that he's not a sinner and he doesn't need saving. Um, Romans 3.10 
tells us, none is righteous, no, not one. But, but as men live, Job has lived as well as it's possible for a human being to live. So, we end up, don't we, with a huge amount of sympathy for Job because he really, really does not understand what's happening. Uh, and he is being pushed by his friends to say, I I I've done wicked things that I need to repent of. But he searches his own heart and he can't, he can't identify these things that he's done that are so bad. Uh, and so he, he begins to say, well, why is God doing this? And I think it should be of encouragement, particularly if you're of that kind of disposition where sometimes you find yourself doubting, sometimes you find yourself worrying. It's not my theme for tonight, so I don't want to get sidetracked on this, but a lot of God's people down through the ages have been really mystified and have suffered from bouts of depression and so on and have struggled. But as we'll see with Job, at the end, the, the, the dawn of the, the light of who God is ha has illuminated. But people like Charles Spurgeon and so on suffered greatly from, from depression, as we would um, call it today. But Job has inner struggles as well. He longs for justice. He pines for vindication, the vindication denied him by his friends, and he feels by God himself. I'm not that bad, Job is saying. And, and, and I just wish he expresses it in these terms sometimes. He says, if, if only I could get to God, I'd ask him what's going on. I, I'd put my case to him, but I can't. Uh, and that's the desire that, that is there. I think it belongs to the first part, as, as Jenny was reading the, the passage for us, um, I was tempted to just read the little last bit of it or to get Jenny to read, but I thought, no, we need the context of it because at the beginning of the chapter, Job is, is, is very negative and he's very consumed. And I think verses 23 to 24, if you've still got your Bible open, um, belongs to that first part. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead... They were engraved in the rock forever. He's saying, I, I just wish that, that, that my whole life was recorded because maybe then posterity would think better of me. If nobody living today thinks that I'm anything other than the worst of sinners, maybe, maybe the future will look at me more kindly. His problem is that he wrestles with what seemed to him to be two contradictory views of God. He fears the holy God before whom his righteousness must seem like unrighteousness. And he feels that he's like a pawn in the hands of God. Chapter 23, 13 to 15. But he is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires, he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me. And many such things are in his mind. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence when I consider 
I am in dread of him. Being a man with a sensitive conscience, he isn't a, a, a man who's saying, look, I'm perfect, there's nothing wrong with me. He's not saying that. He's saying to his friends, your judgment of me is unduly harsh. Uh, and he says, but I fear God. I fear God. In chapter 6 and verse 10, he says, this would be my comfort. I would even exalt in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. He's saying, I, I, I'm not claiming perfection, but I know I am not the evil person that you tell me I am. But he fears God. Chapter 9, 13, 15. God will not turn back his anger. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. He despairs that there appear to be two vital things missing in his quest for God. The first one, there is no mediator. There's nobody. He can't get to God. And there's nobody to please his case with God. Chapter 9, verse 33. There is no arbiter or mediator between us who might lay his hand on us both. He says, if only there was somebody that would stand before this holy God and me and somehow make a bridge between the two of us. If only there were outstretched arms that could touch God with one hand and me with the other. That's what I need. I need an arbiter. But he nudges towards hope. In chapter 16, verses 18 to 20, he says, O earth, cover not my blood, and let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. 9.33 is one of his low points. There is no arbiter. There is nobody to bridge this gap. Uh, and chapter 16 and verses 18 to 22 is his high point. And he says, do you know what I believe? I believe that even now there is an arbiter, there is a mediator, there is a witness in heaven, and he is testifying to this holy God on my behalf. The second thing, there is no hope of a kinsman redeemer. Probably we, we know the idea of a, of a redeemer best from the, the story of Ruth. You remember how Boaz um, is a kinsman redeemer and he can marry Ruth and, uh, and he can kind of restore um, her husband's inheritance and, 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 and so on. But the, the redeemer could do many things. Leviticus 25 says this, If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother sold. That's that's really Ruth. But then, a little later on, it says, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. The Redeemer could ransom somebody from slavery. Boaz is such a Redeemer. So this is, this is Job's problem. He feels that there are two things missing that he desperately needs in order to make sense 
of the fact that he knows he's not as evil as his friends make him out to be, fears that he's not as good as he should be, and doesn't know how to deal with the whole problem. And then comes what, what really is our, our text. Just, it appears in the passage almost out of nowhere. After his despair, when he says, at least posterity would think well on me, comes verse 25, uh, and it's almost as if he shouts it out, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. He has a hope for the future. The Redeemer he seems to identify with God, the kinsman redeemer. Um, even if he should die, Job is saying his redeemer will survive him and be able to restore his honor. He realizes that the living redeemer is a far better witness on his behalf than a cold stone engraved with words. He hopes for a future life. Uh, chapter 14, 14, if a man dies, <coughs> excuse me, Shall he live again all the days of my service? I would, wait, I would wait till my renewal should come. And he thinks he's found what he's looking for. Chapter 16, 19. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. John Calvin said of, of, of this part of the, the passage, Job could not have attained this lost, lofty hope if his aspiration had rested on earth. We must therefore acknowledge that he lifted up his eyes to a future immortality. He saw that his Redeemer would be with him even as he lay in the tomb. Indeed, for those who think only of this present life, death is the final despair. But this could not cut off Job's hope. Even if he slay me, says Job, Nevertheless, I will trust him. That's Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. You see, he's still, he's still bouncing around. He says, if he kills me, I'm still going to trust him. But boy, I'd still like to be able to see him and explain how I'm feeling. In the verses that are up there from verse 24, um, through to the end of verse 27, or partway through 27. He outlines his hope in detail. I'm not going to take long over any of this, but the first thing he says is this. There are seven things altogether. He has a deep personal conviction that the Redeemer he's longed for is real. My Redeemer lives. What a what an encouragement to a man in the, in the depths of, of discouragement and depression. He's saying, yes, I long to get to God, and I think I can. I think there is one who lives and whose life is going to go on forever, transcending the grave. Two, that Redeemer will stand upon the earth at the climax of all history. At the last, he will stand upon the earth. 
even when his, his longed-for kind of monument with his, his testimony to the fact that he was not as guilty as people made him out to be, even when that's been eroded by the sand, he believes his Redeemer will stand on the earth. And this will be despite the fact that he knows he's going to die and that his body is going to decay in the earth. After my skin has thus been destroyed, he has no illusions that he's going to live until the end of the age. He knows that, like, like all flesh, he's going to die. But that isn't the end of his hope. When you think that this is all taking part uh, at the time of Abraham, this is remarkable revelation that Job is receiving here. Yet, there is going to be another body that somehow is still his body in which he will see his Redeemer. Yet, in my flesh, I shall see God. That doesn't seem to make sense, doesn't it? After my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Uh, and just in case you, you think, you know, he, he's talking the kind of, of nonsense that you sometimes hear in, in funerals, you know, um, I'm only in the next room and, you know, I'm the seed that makes the poppies grow or whatever. Um, you get all of this kind of thing. No, 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 he's, he's making this very clear. It really will be him. I shall see for myself, my eyes shall behold, not another. He's not saying I'm going to be vindicated in the eyes of my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren. No, he's saying my Redeemer is going to be there with me at the end of history. He will live directly as a result of the fact that his Redeemer lives. I know my Redeemer lives. I shall live. That's the great truth he's got hold of. I know my Redeemer lives, so I shall live. And then seventhly and lastly, so he warns his friends, be very careful what you say. If you say we will pursue him, the root of the matter is not in him, be afraid of the sword. He realizes that his Redeemer is also going to be his advocate. He, he's going to stand there and he's going to speak out for Job and he's going to take... Um, not vengeance, but he's going to, to adjust everything that's gone on. Now, he doesn't stand alone in this, does he, in the Old Testament? This is one of the most remarkable pictures, I think, in the Old Testament of the hope of the resurrection. But, but it's, not, it's not a standalone verse or a couple of verses that we can be misunderstanding. Let me give you some examples. Psalm 58, 11, mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Isaiah 41, 14, fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Your Redeemer is God. Psalm 17, 5, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. He's talking there, I think, about waking from death. Isaiah 26, 19. 
your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is as a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. One last verse, Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So, how can this be true? Well, I'm sure you've been there long before this point. The answer, of course, is Christ, isn't it? The answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. The wrath of God is turned aside by God himself. Christ is the mediator. There is one God, says Paul to Timothy, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And it's interesting that, that Paul there refers to him specifically as the man Christ Jesus. That this is our advocate with God. That this is one who can put his arms out in both directions. He can touch God because he is God. And he can touch us because he's one of us. He's, he's man in the very fullest sense of the word. Hebrews 8, 6 but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. And a little later on, the same writer says, he is the mediator of a new covenant. A mediator is someone who bridges a gap between two people, who draws two parties or two individuals who might otherwise be apart, and brings them together. Christ is our mediator. But Christ is also our kinsman, redeemer. And again, the, 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 the necessity of understanding he's our kinsman, redeemer. Because the Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself human nature. Didn't pretend to be a man, but took upon himself human nature. He is able to be our kinsman redeemer. Genesis 48 says, the angel who redeemed me from all evil, this is Jacob speaking, he talks of the angel of God redeeming him. The psalmist in Psalm 34, the re Lord redeems the life of his servant. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Redemption requires a price to be paid. You could redeem a slave from the slave markets in Rome, but by going and paying a redemption price. The price for the redemption of God's people was the shedding of blood, because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission from sin. So we're looking for a, a redeemer. We're, we're looking for a mediator. We're looking for one who is one of us, who can pay a price. Of course, the value of one man is one man. But what is the value of the God-man, Christ Jesus? The one who redeemed us from the curse of the law, the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify him for himself, a people for his own possession. It all becomes possible because the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we can see his glory, 
the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Larry Richard says, Jesus was born a baby so that God might become our kinsman. Christ died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. And because of the redemption that he purchased, we who believe belong to God forever. Surely, God in Christ is our Redeemer. Can I close by just asking you some questions? Job, in our passage, makes a statement. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Can I ask you tonight whether you can say the same thing? I know that my Redeemer lives. I, I'm not asking you if you ever have doubts, if you ever have fears, if you ever bounce around like, like Job the bungee jumper. I, I, I'm saying, can you say, as Job did, I know, I know that my Redeemer lives. Do you know Christ? Do you realize that he redeemed you on that cross, that he, he paid for your life with his life? Because if you are, you'll be as confident about facing death as Job is. Though he slay me, says Job, I will trust him. Do you know tonight that it is true of you that one day, yeah, my skin will be destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, me, not somebody else. That's the hope, isn't it? That's the, the hope. One of the things that uh, I think any, any pastor will tell you is that there is an utter difference between the funeral of a believer and the funeral of an unbeliever. The one is all sentimentality and, and, and all sorts of things. The other is full of triumph. You, you say goodbye to this body because it's not needed any longer, but you say goodbye to it in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, and you know that this is not the end, that this is just well, the beginning. That's, where, that's how Job managed to find himself in the end. Out of all of his, his turmoil and his struggles and his fears and his doubts, he reached this point where he said, do you know what? All that matters is that I have a redeemer and my redeemer will meet me at the end of the age and I will be with him. Like a lot of well, preachers that use iPads particularly, I tend to kind of do things in different fonts and all sorts of things. My, my last point is this. Will you eventually die in the... Then it becomes bold, and it's in red, and it's got a yellow highlighter behind it in the realistic assurance of your own personal resurrection. Do you know tonight that Jesus is your Savior? Do you know tonight that he is your mediator and your redeemer? Do you know tonight that neither life nor death matters? Because for you, to live is Christ and to die is gain, which I think is all that Job is saying for us in those passages. I know my redeemer 
lives. And in that assurance of faith, you can live victoriously, die triumphantly, and rise at the end of the day with your Redeemer's hand clasping yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are just amazed at how much Job understood, how much he suffered and still maintained his integrity, how he refused the, the option offered by his wife to curse God and die, but how he believed with all his heart that his Redeemer lived and all at the end would be well. And we thank you that it was and it is and it will be for us as for him if Christ is our Redeemer and our Lord. Amen.